This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. Hi, this is Audio Immunity. I'm Kevin Bonham, and this is a mini-sode recorded April 22nd, 2015. Before I get started, I just have a quick announcement, and that is that I'm going out of the country next week, and... You don't need to know that except to say that uh, I'm the one that usually mixes and produces the episodes, and so if there aren't any episodes for the next month, I'm going to be gone for quite some time, uh, that's the reason why. Hopefully Kate or Matt can pick up the slack while I'm gone, uh, but if not, well, just wait around until June and you'll get some more episodes. So, with that out of the way, on my last mini-sode, which was uh, over a month ago now, I started to talk a little bit about scientific publishing and why I think that closed access scientific publishing is a terrible idea. And just to recap briefly, the way that science typically works is that scientists write grants, get funding from usually the government, although sometimes private uh, funding agencies. They do some experiments, they get some results, they write up the results, and then they submit to a journal. The journal then decides if they are interested in the paper, they send it off to other scientists who peer review the paper for free, give suggestions. Oftentimes, the original authors have to address some of the reviewers' concerns, either in writing or through some other experiments. And then ultimately, the peer reviewers decide whether they recommend the paper or not, and the journal accepts and publishes or not. If they accept the paper, the original scientists, again, then pay the journal for the privilege of publishing uh, the paper. So then what happens when a paper is published? Well, in order for other scientists to read it, they have to pay, oftentimes, the journal for the privilege of reading the science that the government has paid for and that scientists have performed. So individuals, in order to access papers, uh, often have to pay in the neighborhood of $20 to $30 for a single journal article. Folks like me, Matt, and Kate, we are at universities that thankfully pay for subscriptions to scientific journals. So for most journals, we can go to our institution's uh, library server and we can access Nature and Science and Cell uh, free of charge because we're part of the university. But the university doesn't get those subscriptions for free. They pay enormous amounts of money in order to get that institution-wide access. In fact, back in 2012, the Harvard Libraries submitted a memorandum about scientific publishing saying that many large journal publishers have made the scholarly communication environment fiscally unsustainable and academically restrictive. Later on, they say that Harvard's annual cost for the journals, and again, this is in 2012, from these providers now approaches $3.75 million. In 2010, the comparable amount accounted for more than 20% of all periodical subscription costs and just under 10% of all collection costs for everything the library acquires. And I'll link to this document in the show notes. It's a pretty remarkable read. Um, so that $3.5 million in 2012, what exactly did that buy from the journal? So as I said, it buys institutional access to journal articles, but what I'm really asking is, what is the value that the journals themselves provide that accounts for the amount that they charge? And I think here a little bit of history is useful. So before there were academic journals, most science was communicated in the form of letters. And in fact, many current scientific publishers still use letters as a way to describe the articles that they publish. So scientists, although they weren't really calling themselves scientists at the time, this is in the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, would do science. They would 
send letters to their colleagues in other parts of their country or in other countries saying what they discovered. And in some cases, scientific societies rose up and they would begin to read the letters of their colleagues out. And so we have modern day journals like the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences because the way that scientific information used to be distributed was that people would write letters to their colleagues in the scientific societies and those letters would then be read aloud during a meeting of the National Academy, for example. And so really journals arose as a more efficient means of distribution of scientific knowledge. As the scientific enterprise grew, it became somewhat untenable to send letters to all of the scientists that might be interested in your work, or for every scientist to get to a meeting of a scientific society in order to hear the latest research. So journals, like nature and science, arose as a way of distributing scientific information by subscription to the people that would be interested in the knowledge. And that was great, and that was a huge value to the early scientific endeavor. Of course, as with a lot of media these days, the internet is making the problem of distribution somewhat of a thing of the past. And so I think it's hard for journals to say that their main value is in distribution when the vast majority of scientists, at least that I know, don't read printed journal articles anymore. Everything is online, archived by, for example, in the US, the National Libraries of Medicine. And any scientist for a couple of bucks or for free in many cases can have their own blog where they can distribute the results of their experiments. So distribution isn't really an issue anymore. So a lot of people will say, well, the value that journals provide is peer review. After all, peer review is a critical part of scientific knowledge. I think this is maybe a topic for another time. Peer review isn't sort of the end-all be-all of scientific accuracy. Plenty of not true things make it through peer review just fine, but at least getting the stamp of peer review suggests something about the credibility. Some scientists at least signed off on the ideas in the paper, or at least the conclusions that were drawn from the data presented. But as I mentioned at the top, journals don't actually do peer review. Journals manage peer review, so the editors of journals will send submitted articles off to scientists to perform the peer review, but it's scientists that are doing peer review, and they're doing it for free. When a journal article contacts a principal investigator and asks for their peer review, they don't offer any money. Uh, usually it's sort of a handshake deal a lot of times if an author has published a lot in a particular journal that journal is more likely to reach out to them for peer review and if you have a relationship with scientific editors it can help your chances of publishing in a journal but scientists really do this work for free it's considered part of the job to review other scientists work okay so journals aren't really needed for distribution anymore they manage peer review but they don't perform peer review so what other value do they provide i think one of the other things that scientists that i talk to will often bring up is that journals provide some filtering mechanism for knowing what is good science. In other words, if you read a scientific paper that's in Nature Immunology, you might sort of assume that it is a better article than something published in the Scandinavian Journal of Immunology, not to pick on them. Uh, I don't know why we tend to pick on them. Um, it's a fine journal. Or in a journal that you've never heard of, you might expect something in Nature Immunology 
is gonna be a better read, which is not to say that it's gonna be more correct or that it's gonna be more important. It might be impact factor, which is the way that a lot of journals are judged is based on the number of articles that cite articles in that journal. But in some ways it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If an article is in nature, it's gonna be read by more people and therefore it's probably gonna be cited by more people. So journals manage peer review. They might provide some filtering mechanism for judging the value of a particular article. Are those services worth the billions of dollars spent on journals, the billions of dollars in profits that journals make every year from scientists. And again, all of the money, well, most of the money is coming from taxpayer dollars. In some cases, it's also coming from uh, charities and institutions, but the bulk of the money that pays for scientific work and therefore pays for the content of scientific journals is coming from the government. And so one thing you might say is, well, of course, the value that journals provide is worth the cost because scientists and institutions are willing to pay the costs for the journals. And I don't think that's a great argument, but in order to get into that, I'm gonna need more time and I'm gonna save that argument for my next mini-sode, which again, isn't gonna come until June because I'm gonna be gone for most of the month of May on my honeymoon. But until then, this has been Audio Immunity from immunity.org. And this show, as well as all of our other mini-sodes and episodes can be found at immunity.org, E-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y.org. We are supported in part by Harvard Medical School. They paid for our microphones and for some of the software that we use uh, to make graphics and to edit the audio. And the music at the beginning and the end of the podcast was written and performed by Rachel Reinick. I'll see you next time.